the Ortho PAC hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Dr. Richard Rutherford is a fellowship-trained physician specializing in joint replacement. Dr. Rutherford is with us today to discuss non-operative options for knee and hip osteoarthritis. Dr. Rutherford, welcome. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me again. Let's start with non-operative options for knee and hip osteoarthritis. There are many people who would benefit from a total knee or hip, but can't have one for multiple reasons. What would be some scenarios that you would consider would fit this kind of discussion? It might be useful just to, to take a step back and consider the indications for surgery, uh, how I think about whether or not a patient is a candidate for a, a knee or hip replacement. So, you know, generally speaking, it, it would be a patient that has radiographically severe arthritis and they've, they failed conservative treatment and they have pain affecting their, you know, activities of daily living and quality of life. So if you have somebody that doesn't meet all of those criteria, that would be a patient that goes in the bucket that they need some, you know, continued conservative treatment or they need to initiate conservative treatment. You also have some patients who are candidates for, for surgery who, for medical reasons, it's just not appropriate to perform an elective surgery on them. And, you know, it's something I stress in preoperative discussions with patients that fortunately knee and hip replacement, it, it, it's not like cardiac surgery or, or tumor surgery. This is completely elective. You can do it at your discretion. They can fit it into their life when it's appropriate. You have patients who make the decision that it's not the right time for them and you need to initiate conservative care, or you have patients who are just averse to surgery and, and you initiate conservative care for that patient. And or, or patients that are just not appropriate at that time. Some examples, I think we chatted about some of this in our infection discussion, but patients who would not be appropriate candidates might be smokers or a patient with, ele with elevated BMI over 40, high hemoglobin A1C, or, you know, or with a, a poorly managed uh, significant medical comorbidity, such as uh, renal disease or congestive heart failure. Those would be examples. Let's talk about your approach. You start with x-rays, you had mentioned that, examine treatments. And back to your point on the x-ray findings being a, a qualifier for whether somebody gets surgery, I've had people who have moderate arthritis on x-ray and just debilitated with pain, night pain, et cetera. But I've also had people with bone-on-bone -bone arthritis by x-ray that, you know, occasional injection, they do fine. And I've always mentioned to patients, okay, well, the x-rays guide us, but your symptoms are, are the main thing, you know, notwithstanding the medical history, the BMI smoker, that sort of issue. When your pain gets debilitating, that's when it's time to have the procedure. Is that kind of in line with how you go about this or would you say different? That's very much in line with my thought process and the way I was trained. And I think most of us were trained to treat the patient, not the x-ray. So the radiographically severe arthritis can make you a candidate for a knee replacement provided you meet the other criteria. But again, because it's elective, if the patient's quality of life is such that they're doing well, certainly there's no indication for surgery. You know, there are some specific instances in the knee and in the hip in which I, I have, uh, you know, a stronger recommendation to consider surgical treatment. 
you know, if somebody has severe bone loss, if they have damaged collateral ligaments in the knee, so a, an incredibly unstable knee that's placing them at fall risk, then you know, it's still an elective surgery, but you might frame the discussion a little bit differently. But I, I really agree with the sentiment that you don't treat the x-ray, you, you, you treat the patient. If we talk about non-operative options, there's a gamut, NSAIDs through stem cells, RFA, bracing PT. I was hoping you might cover some treatments that you like to offer patients as a non-operative way to manage their symptoms. Absolutely. And I would uh, definitely recommend anybody who's taking care of, of hip and knee arthritis patients, look at the AAOS clinical practice guidelines. If you're trying to practice evidence-based medicine, that's like a definite starting point. And if you look at these, what is, you know, can be surprising is a lot of the things we've been trained to do and a lot of things we all do, you'll find there's not great evidence for a lot of the things a lot of us do. So I, I, you know, I'll tell you the way I practice, but I, I would stress it's a good starting point for everybody to look at the, the clinical practice guidelines for non-operative management of hip and knee OA. Okay. Generally speaking, there's, there's good evidence for weight loss for people who are obese. And statistically, there's, it's going to be a lot of our patients in the U.S. Physical therapy, there, there's decent evidence for it. I think usually in my practice, the discussion I have is, is doing self-directed PT rather than a lot of preoperative formal PT. But there is evidence supporting formal PT uh, as a conservative treatment modality. And then anti-inflammatories, there's potential side effects and not everybody can tolerate them, but good evidence that they can improve function and help uh, alleviate pain. So those are those are solid starting points for people that are fairly conservative. Things I use in my practice for which there's not great evidence are, are injections. And there's really not wonderful evidence for cortisone injections as far as improving long-term function for patients. And there have been some recent papers from our colleagues in in radiology, you know, demonstrating some rapid progression of arthritis, both in hip and knee patients. We've all had kind of long-term concerns about cortisone and, and, you know, wanting to be aware of how many and how often we're, we're giving uh, them to patients. But recently there's been some new evidence, I think, raising concern about cortisone. So I'm a, I'm a lot more careful currently in my practice about recommending them. I don't have a lot of evidence for this, but for me, I have more concern about hip injections for patients than knee injections, just because of my personal experience and in, in seeing some folks uh, experience rapid progression of hip arthritis. In a patient with mild hip arthritis, I've been very cautious about initiating cortisone injections. And at the very least, you have to have a very frank discussion with them that a minority of people will experience rapid progression of their arthritis after such an injection. And there are some rare things such as avascular necrosis and uh, subchondral fractures um, that, that can occur after those. I don't know about you, but those were a part of my, you know, as part of my training, we, we recommended them frequently and we did hip and knee injections very often, but um, I'm, I'm a lot more cautious with them. I feel more comfortable offering them for people with severe arthritis because I feel like the, the cat is out of the bag, so to speak. The damage is already done and you're not going to make that patient worse. That's a discussion I have with everybody who's starting injections is that it could potentially worsen them. I haven't seen the rapid progression of arthritis as much in the knee, but if you read the recent papers from radiologists, they, they've seen it in the knee as well. It's hard to really define because not everybody has preoperative pre, pre and post injection imaging and 
not everybody's imaging people that frequently, but I think it's a, it's a good reminder that this is an issue to, before you inject a knee, you should definitely have imaging of that knee. And that, that's something I see sometimes from a patient that's been referred from urgent care is they, they haven't had imaging of a joint that's been injected. So I would make sure you know what the joint looks like before you inject it. And if you have a patient who's not responding well, or he's had multiple injections over time, I think it's indicated to obtain additional imaging to monitor for progression and to really keep an eye out for rapid progression of arthritis in a hip or knee patient. Dr. Rutherford, let me just jump in real quick. When you say imaging, we're, we're talking about x-rays or, or are you talking about MRIs? I would start with plain x-rays, plain radiographs of the of the joint. That's where I'd start, absolutely. And whether it's injections or some other form of conservative treatment, if, if you've been treating somebody and they haven't responded the way you would think and they're having pain that's limiting to them, then that's, that's often where I'll, I'll proceed to uh, cross-sectional imaging, such as an MRI. Great information about cortisone. I think most people listening, cortisone is a mainstay, a staple of your practice. So you got to know that it can, with long-term use, cause other problems. So what about hyaluronic acid, stem cells, PRP, RFA? What's your take on that? This is the realm in which we have a lot of treatments and not a lot of great evidence supporting any of them for for long-term efficacy for patients. I think there's a few considerations when you're considering really any treatment, whether it's something you do, something a patient reads about and brings you, you know, print out about. You want to consider, is it safe for your patient? You want to consider, is it effective for your patient? And you want to consider the cost. There's a lot of literature regarding visco supplementation. None of it really shows a large benefit for patients. To the extent that the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons uh, surgeons strongly recommends against using them routinely. If you look at the practice patterns for, for hip and knee surgeons, we use them a lot. And so what's the reason for that discrepancy? I think it's because it, it's a safe treatment and it's an alternative to a surgery that has some significant risk to it. And so from a practical standpoint, if you have a patient in your office who's failed other treatments, doesn't want to proceed with surgery, even if the evidence isn't strong, that it's going to provide them long-term benefit. It's a treatment alternative that's low risk for the patient, and it benefits some patients in the literature. So admittedly, there's not strong evidence for it, but I think it's a safe alternative to a a surgery. The downside is is there's a cost, and all of us are trying to be cost-effective in how we treat our patients. And so that, that, that is a problem. And that's, you know, again, why I think, I think it's good for everybody to be familiar with these practice guidelines and and what the evidence is for these certain treatments. But in the office, I think you have to do what you think is best for the individual patient. You know, in terms of visco supplementation, I I think it's something I personally, I use in my practice. I, I make sure that I am upfront with the patient that the evidence is weak for that particular treatment, that I think it's safe. It just might not benefit them. As you go down the line with other modalities, I think that the cost benefit gets worse and worse with some of the other injectables. So with with PRP and stem cells, these are are costly treatments. In terms of significant benefit for hip and knee arthritis, I, I don't think there's great evidence for it. I want patients to know about them, so I try to educate them about it. But in in my practice, they're not modalities I would typically recommend to somebody. I frame it as, uh, you know, something I want them to know is an active area of research and that there, you know, these are areas that are being studied. They're generally very costly, but there's not 
great long-term evidence supporting their use for, for knee and hip arthritis. In terms of radiofrequency ablation, there have been some recent meta-analyses done looking at that, comparing them to other injectables that are somewhat favorable. I think they're generally comparing treatments with poor evidence to, to another treatment with relatively poor evidence, but it, it, it's something that I would frame to a patient as being safe that just may not work for them as an individual. And if it's somebody who is not a surgical candidate, is not ready for surgery, it's something that could give them an improvement in pain for the short term as a conservative treatment option for them. So we talked about several modalities. Just one more thought. What about bracing? There are some fancy knee braces out there for osteoarthritis. What's your take on that? Bracing a patient with severe medial compartment arthritis with a medial unloader brace can be beneficial in that instance. And, and overall, I think there are some patients who receive symptomatic benefit from bracing. Braces have a cost, so I advise patients about that. Um, I, I generally, if someone is interested and, and they, they don't exactly fit the scenario of a medial unloader, I would recommend they start with an over-the-counter, you know, off-the-shelf brace that's low cost and then advance, you know, as needed to something with, you know, rigid stays um, and a more supportive brace. But bracing tends to fall in the category of something that a patient can spend as much money as they want to on it, and it it may not provide them long-term benefit. So unless there's a strict clinical indication like ligamentous instability, or somebody with severe medial compartment OA who is insistent on conservative management and needs to be unloaded. It's not something I routinely uh, prescribe for a patient, but it's, it's something I discuss in terms of, you know, certainly if somebody's getting close to surgery, you would want to include bracing and gate aids in your um, list of alternatives to proceeding with a surgery to, to that patient. All right. Great information on non-operative management of degenerative joint disease. Dr. Rutherford, thank you for that. Well, thanks again for having me on. Enjoyed talking to you. I hope you can tune in next week. Dr. Rutherford is with us to discuss workup of a painful total joint 